0: Lights, camera, action. Let's get started here. We have
1: Steve Gutenberg. Yay. Charlie.
0: (laughs) Charlie, Charlie. Charlie, Charlie.
1: Oh, this is so So we should actually (laughs) explain how we know each other.
0: Yes, we should. We should. should, Let's
1: start with that for all the the people out there. Exactly. um, I met Charlie through my sister, Judy. My sister, Judy, my brother-in-law, Dan, Good friends with you and your ex. That's right. And this is 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. And um, I was directing and producing a movie called P.S. Your Cat is Dead. Yes. And we needed help. Yeah. And you were over at the big Technicolor. That's right. And uh, Judy said, well, why don't you talk to Charlie? <laughs> and then you and I became friends. That's right. And then
0: ironically, in the middle of all that, that happened, uh, as I was explaining before, at, at at what was the old CFI Lab, right. which is where we are sitting... Right. right now, and this is where oh, we did our post. That's where we did our right yeah. in this property that was right. environmentally cleaned up and right. changed into Formosa right. and other places. Great,
1: great. Oh, who's doing the color correction? Really uh, terrific artist. What's his well, name? you had
0: Dana Ross, probably Dana Dana that's Ross, right. he was color great. timer, who's still around. God bless what him. A, My what a co- talented co- guy. What a lovely man. Yeah. 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 Um, so now uh, I want to dive in because I know I have like some fair, somewhat intimate knowledge of, of, of early life, but uh, I don't have like all of the, 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 the background of you ramping to the point where you decide to become an actor. You're growing up, you're born in Brooklyn, you're raised in Queens, You moved to Massapequa. Give me, give me that early snapshot of, of the, the stages in your life that led to, led you to become or want to
1: be an actor. Mm. Really lucky. Um, I think, you know, so much is skill uh, and professionalism uh, and talent, but I do believe that God comes into it. Uh, and I was very, very lucky to be born into a wonderful family, mother and father who were hardworking um, and had great work ethic and values and a great value system. So uh, we came from uh, Borough Park, Brooklyn, about 49th and 10th, that's where my parents were born and grew up and met. Um, and I was born in Mamamides, which was the old Israel Zion. Um, I grew up uh, for a few years in Brooklyn. Then my parents moved to Queens, to Flushing, uh, uh, Franklin Avenue, which I recently visited a few years ago, which is great. Um, and then um, my dad used to watch me play in the backyard of the apartment house in a, in an area called the Snake Pit, where everybody from the apartment house would throw all their kids in this concrete, sort of half-baked playground. You know, it wasn't like the days of today where everything is cushy and, you know, every swing set is protected. This was real swing sets. If you didn't look, you got banged in the teeth and your teeth are out. Oh my um, God. So, you know, yeah. metal slides with no cushion to fall on. Love it. Um, then my dad said, hey, we got to move out of here. And we moved to Massapequa, actually North Massapequa, Plain Edge, uh, which spawned, uh, Marvin Hamlish and uh, Timmy Van Patten, uh, Jerry, Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld, Alec Baldwin and his family, his his brothers. Um, but you, none of you guys collided in your paths growing up, right? No, not yet. I really no. do hope one day to do a Massapequa movie where all the Massapequa <laughs> guys get in and, and... Do a movie together. Do a movie together. It'd be great. Uh, and I had a terrific childhood there, very healthy childhood. Uh, the days before cell phones, before there were... Weirdos roaming the neighborhood where you could actually leave your house and your mother goes, come back in four hours. And you come back when the sun's going down, Uh, playing ring olivio and hide and go seek and, you know, going to the baseball field only a block and a half away. Um, My mother yelling, come, come, come home for dinner. Um, you know, like that commercial, Anthony. You know, for uh, a Prince yeah. spaghetti sauce. Prince spaghetti. Yeah, where kids yeah. running through it's, the streets. Exactly. It's and Prince that spaghetti week, day. Prince spaghetti day. So Wednesday. <laughs> so uh, I had a great way to to grow up. Yeah. Great, great values. So one of my parents' great friends from Brooklyn was a man named Michael Bell, who was an actor and became very very successful doing voiceovers, um, and he became wealthy. So he would come to our house with a Cadillac and a beautiful girlfriend and lots of money. And uh, people would say, what do you want to do when you grow up, Stephen? I said, what does he do? They, <laughs> said, he, they said, he's an actor. I go, ah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> uh, and that's really how it started. Uh, so when I was 12 years old, I joined a wonderful theater group in Long Island. in The town of Oyster Bay is where I grew up, uh, where Massapequa is, and it's the South Shore. And in the North Shore... The town of Oyster Bay goes from the south shore of Long Island to the north shore of Long Island. And it's a wonderful, wonderful town. Uh, Billy Joel comes from Hicksville, which is in the town of Oyster Bay. So I joined the Teen Repertory Theater, which was an acting group which did plays in the summer. Uh, Three plays, Rapunzel, you know, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, we did them at libraries for children. It was children theater. And a wonderful acting teacher, my first acting teacher, Marilyn Rosen, who herself was a great dancer and a great actress, and she took this ragtag group of 12 people that you had to audition for this position, which was actually competitive to get in. I got in, and uh, there were four girls, four guys, and we did plays. And... I loved it. I loved the discipline of learning your lines. I loved the discipline of being there on time. I loved the discipline of changing into your wardrobe, putting on your own makeup. I learned makeup. I learned wardrobe. I learned how to present yourself. Uh, I learned everything from mirror ac- exercises to me- memorization and memorization, memorizing passages from Shakespeare or Moliere or Arthur Miller. Um, Uh, or John, you know, you know, the old stuff, you know, um, so all great, all classic great plays, classic great plays, you know, um, yeah, uh, golden boy, you know, I, I had to learn passages from golden boy. So we, uh, we did that summer and I loved it and uh, I was hooked. And as my grandmother said, you got the acting bug. And I did. Um, and then my father, when I was 14, um, I was a terrible student in mathematics. And in New York City, in New York, they have something called the regent's exam. So at the end of the school year, in uh, uh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade, uh, no, ninth, tenth, and eleventh, twelfth grade, you have to take this regent's exam. If you don't pass the regent's exam, you actually get left back in that particular subject. Um, And it was a serious exam. Now I had a, like a 65 average going in to my algebra class, and uh, Mr. Goldberg was my teacher. And my father said to me, "You got to pass this Regents exam. You can't fail." Because I was just a screw off. My next door neighbor Kippy Cohn, had a motorbike, so uh, my eighth eighth uh, my eighth period class was algebra. I couldn't wait to get out of there to go ride his motorbike in the in the woods. So my father said, "What do you really want?" And I said, I want a trip to California. I want to go m- visit Michael Bell in his mansion and go out there and see what it's like. You know, California in those days were bushy, bushy blonde hairdo with the surfboard, people walking with no s- shoes in the street. It really was that way in, the, in 1970. Right. So um, it was 1970 or 1972. And my father said, I'll send you out there. And it was expensive to send somebody to California. If you get a hundred on your regents, that's like saying right now you and me, Charlie, are going to practice basketball for a month and join the Warriors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, exactly. That, that's the chances yeah, yeah. of me getting a hundred.
0: Yeah, we're going to be Olympic athletes. We're going to yeah, be but, Olympic athletes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that the chances are about that of me and you doing that. So, uh, I I got this book called the Baron's Regents Book. And it gave all the past exams from the algebra regents. And, and the, and the regents was in, I guess, April. Um, and I studied, started studying in October. And I sat down every night at my parents' kitchen table with my Barron's Regents book and the exams. And it was literally like if I had to learn Mandarin in one day. I mean, that's how... Adept I was at algebra, but every night I sat down disciplined for two or three hours a night, and I took these past exams, and I did it every day, seven days a week, every day till the exam. Now, I just wanted to pass the exam. I really knew that there was no chance I was going to get a hundred. I just wanted to pass. Because I didn't want to take algebra again, <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> uh, so I just wanted a sixty-five. I love it. So I studied, and studied, and studied. The they came for my test, and I, I didn't even tell my parents I was taking the test because I just didn't want them to get get on me about you got to pass this test. <laughs> and I think my parents forgot about that sort of little deal, which I sort of forgot about it too, an extent. But I just wanted to pass. Took the exam, and. Uh, a few days later, Mr. Goldberg, who said to everybody, whoever gets 100 on the algebra regions gets to fly in my plane. He had a, I think it was a Piper one-engine plane, single-engine plane, or Cherokee. And he kept it at the Fairfield, I forgot what it's called, Fairfield Private Air. Anyway, someone having a private plane was unbelievable. Of course. He had a private plane. So I took the exam right next to Kippy, and I was just praying to get a sixty-five. And I remember there were kids like Ray Massiello and Warner—I forgot Warner's last name. They were the ninety-nine students. They were—they the, had perfect scores in Mr. Goldberg's class. I sat in the back with Kippy, sending notes to each other. Hey, what time are we gonna ride the mini bike? Oh, <laughs> hopefully I could get gas from my father. You know, that's all I did in algebra. So I took the exam. And I just and I came home, and uh, I was just hoping to pass. So I remember uh, I went in that day to class when he was going to announce, you know, who got what. And I was just praying I got a 65. And Mr. Goldberg said, well, I have three classes. Because, you know, teachers have many classes. He says, I have three algebra classes. And out of those 90 students, one person got a 100 and werner was you know he was from german parents you know they are so disciplined in their study and they were just, he was just standing there waiting for the 100 and there's ray massiello just waiting for the 100 and i'm sitting there with Kippy code going i hope we got a 65 <laughs> <laughs> i mean i hope i because you know, i want to ride that motorbike man that mini bike because i knew my father would just destroy me my you know if i didn't pass so he looked around and he said that person's in this class so, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, these guys were puffed up like, you know, like, like roosters. And he said, and the 65 goes to Mr. Guttenberg back there. Now I'm passing it back to Kippy Code going, hope we can ride the minibike. And I looked up and every head in the classroom looked at me and went, what? Because I was just a dummy. And Mr. Goldberg said, congratulations, Mr. Guttenberg you've got a free ride in the plane. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And all of a sudden, it was the first time I ever saw what fame does. Every head in the classroom turned toward me and was amazed and awed. And my presence was given room. And we took the last class and whatever that last class was and at the end I got up and Mr. Goldberg said come over and you know wanted to give me a, give take my phone number down cuz he wanted to make plans to give me my ride in the plane and as I walked out all the guys gave me such props and such respect and all the girls were thinking I was good looking and everybody was shaking my hand and patting me on the I've never got any of that adulation ever in my life I was invisible every day of my life in in school. I was not an athlete. I was not a star student. I was not very handsome. I was invisible. And all of a sudden, not only was I visible, but throughout the day, people were coming up to me, batting me on the... Well, I got home that day, and I waited till my father got home. I remember we had an above-ground pool, and I was standing on the edge of the pool... Vacuuming, and I remember Jaws was out around then, and I was so afraid that a shark was going to come out and eat me from the above ground swimming pool. Right, of course, yeah. So my dad was home, and I said, "Dad, Dad, I got to talk to you." So I threw, I put down the the vacuum, and I ran out, and I said, "Mom, Dad, you got to sit down." And they said, "What?" I go, "I got a hundred on the Regents," and they said, "No, you didn't." I said, "I did, I did," and you have to send me to California. And my father said, "This, come on." You didn't get it, and Mr. Goldberg called that night, and uh, and that was a big deal. So, I actually flew out to California, my first plane ride, and it was like I was, it was like being. Uh, in a private plane to me, you know, I, mean, I actually took that flight with Mr. Goldberg, which was a lot of fun. It was just me and him in a little plane. But I went on a real plane with food from a stewardess, and I was stealing the, the napkins and the and everything. And I got there, and Michael Bell picked me up, and I got out to California, and the airport was beautiful, and the and the palm trees and the air. And I got into his BMW, you know, a, a car I never heard of. I didn't know what kind of car this was, a sports car. And we drove, and he was pointing out that's where Warren Beatty lives, and that's where Marlon Brando lives. And we got to his house, and it was in the valley on La Maeda off of uh, Laurel Canyon. And he had know—he sh- had an aquarium with a live shrimp in it. No. Talk about exotic. I mean, you know, I just saw new neon minnows in somebody's freshwater tank. He had a saltwater tank with a shrimp in it. And a swimming pool, and uh, that was my tri- first trip to California. So. And
0: and there it was the the at the doorstep of uh, of what would be. Yeah. yeah, so then now you've got the taste. You're and and you go back to real life again. Obviously, in school changed right and everything changed. changed. Yeah, and 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 back in 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 school, you're now what age at this point? You're in your teens, right?
1: Well, let's see. I was 17, 17, 16, 15, I was fourteen. Fourteen years old. So yeah. you've
0: got you got some years left in school, but yeah. now you've you've made a tremendous achievement, Uh-oh. tremendous stride. Yeah. And you're following the the idea of pursuing an acting career. And there apparently is a gentleman who I only know because of your email address, uh, Gerald Kirby. Yeah, Mr. Kirby. Tell me about. I, I all these years I've been sending emails to your Kirby address, and I didn't know that.
1: I didn't even know who that was, and now yeah. I know who it is. Tell me about this. Mr. Kirby was the acting teacher in Plain Edge High School. Okay. And he was actually the director and the producer of the play, the senior play, and that was a big deal. It's sort of like the Academy Awards of Plain Edge. And um, I, uh, I waited a couple of years because uh, I didn't want— I, I, you could work on the play— as a junior, as a sophomore, but I waited for some reason until my senior year to act. To act in the because I was so embarrassed. You know, I, I came from a, you know, tough high school where there's a lot of rockos and leather jackets and, you know, tough guys. Yeah, yeah. And you know, to be an actor is. Was was Joey around then? Yeah, Joey Papalato. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know Joey. Joey was the hero of Plain Edge. Um, Joey was guy was drafted by the Yankees. Really good looking. Owned the pizza shop in town, which is like owning, you know, Nobu. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, <laughs> it really was, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and my sister and my sister was friends with him, and his sister, you know, was one of the most beautiful women in the world. She worked at the pizza shop. Um. And Joey's about five years older than me. Mm-hmm. So I would always see Joey, I always afraid to talk to him. Um, and later on, my sister Susan introduced us, and we became best friends. Of course, yeah. Uh, and then I, I met Mr. Kirby in the hallway, and I said to him, you know, I, I was in the teen repertory theater, and he said, oh, I, I know all about it. And he said, why don't you, why you ever work on the play? And I, you know, I was too shy. And he said, well, why don't you go out for the play? And I said, I don't know. He says, go out for the play. So the auditions, you know, all the beautiful girls in school were there. And I was so afraid, you know, to make a peep. I don't want anyone to look at me. Being invisible was great because you didn't have to do anything. There were no consequences. No. All my friends were the smart kids, but more nerdy. You know, I had one really cool friend, Russell Remondino who lived around the block from me and befriended me. And he was a sports star and good-looking, and he was my only really cool friend. All my other friends, Epstein and Don Puller and Bob Cantor, and, you know, they were all, you know, basically, you know, the Jewish smart kids who really aren't getting any of the pretty girls or hitting any of the baseballs, you know. My friend Epstein actually was on the football team. You know, he's just no neck, and, you know, I don't think he played very much, but... Um, did you play any high school athletics? I played all kinds of uh, stuff in leagues. I was in the basketball league and stuff like that. Did but you I play, never played, did you played play on... baseball or yeah, any... yeah. But I never played any teams. No team sports. School. No. Okay. I was always afraid that I would get my oh wait a minute what the heck am I saying? I was on the soccer team. I was going to say yeah. Wait that... a minute, I yeah. was an athlete. Hold on. Uh, and uh, uh, I was third string soccer goalie. Okay. and um, uh, Goalie. Goalie. Interesting. And Kurt was first string. There was another guy who was second string. And I'll never forget, they put me in, every time they put me in for a game, when we were up like 100 goals, the the, the, the soccer coach, Mr. Licht, Licht, I think, who was actually I know since grade school, said to me, if they score on you, Guttenberg, I will hang your ass (laughs) from that flagpole. And later on in my life you'll see I've been told I'm gonna to have my ass hung from a lot of flagpoles. But um actually they did score on me. And I think he did try to hoist me up that flagpole. Um but I did join. You did join. I okay. was I made a I made the school soccer uh league uh team and I did travel with them. So
0: um that was part of the that was part of the part of the journey included a little bit of athletics yeah. yeah
1: and then so now but my dad actually interesting story yeah my dad in 10th grade mm-hmm. had a gym in the basement of our house my dad's in really great Noah, shape no your father's in tremendous shape and he would lift weights and all of that yeah, right? like you really lift gate us guns. army ranger new york city policeman really strong guy and tough guy and i started working out with him and all of a sudden in 12th grade my muscles started to grow. Yeah. And I started walking through the, the, the you know, it's all Italian. Massa piqua is matzah pizza, all Jews and Italians. Right, right. And all of a sudden, I got a chest and arms and legs and thighs, and I started being respected by the Roccos. Right. Because I had some muscles. Right. You know, in high school, the currency is muscles. That's your currency. So um, I got a little more. Uh, you got a little perhaps. bit more cred on that. A little yeah. More, yeah. Yeah. And then so now now uh,
0: you you get through your your school years there and and then you you exit out Uh, to to California, but you, there, there's a brief stop in Albany at SUNY. What, what I don't, I never really, and we never talked about that. So I don't know much about what your years were there. You went to SUNY for a bit and then decided to move out to California while you were an undergraduate at SUNY. How did that work out? And when, how did that transition work? Actually the opposite. The opposite.
1: I got accepted to Albany State SUNY Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I was going to go up there. Okay. I said to my dad and my mom. So you graduated high school. Three days after graduating high school, but a month before, I said, Can I go out to California again? I want to try to be a movie star. So my parents said, That's a lot of money. And, you know, I go, Just send me out there for two weeks. I'll use my own money. I had my bar mitzvah money. And uh, they said, Okay. You can go out to live with Michael for two weeks, but after two weeks, you have to come home and go to school. And, go uh, to forget, college. Go to college. I forgot what they call that, where you go up, uh, orientation. Right. You have to go up for you know, two days of orientation, You come back home, they put you in a dormitory for two days and come back home. So your orientation was like July, and then end of August, you start school. Right on. So I went out to California, and Michael uh, picked me up again. And I drove back to this time, he was living on Mulholland Drive. Oh, so there, Right yeah, across now, uh... the street from Ernest Borgnine. Oh, yeah. And right down the block from Warren Beatty and right back around the block from the compound where Jack Nicholson and, and uh, Marlon Brando lived. Right. I mean, you could, I could ride my bike there. Right. So I got out there, and uh, Michael said, What do you want to do? I go, I want to become a movie star. He goes, All right, if you want to be a movie star, you got to hustle somehow. So he said, how long do you have out here? I go, I got two weeks. He goes, two weeks to become a movie star. I go, I can do it. So uh, he gave me his pacer, a little car. And he said, here's the addresses of all the studios. Warners, MGM, UA, uh, you know, 20th. Disney. Go out and see if you can get in there. And I started to sneak in. Onto the lots. Onto all the lots. Because in those days, there were no computers. There were no real, um, real security other than a guard. And I found the easiest place to sneak in was Paramount. So I had my sport coat from my bar mitzvah, a little, uh, a corduroy sport coat and I had a little attache case that my dad gave me. And I would wait till it wasn't, it was very busy and the guard was kind of busy and you would go to a, a, a pass through where it had, um, clock-ins. In sure. those days were really literally pieces of paper you'd clock in. They punched the clock with a pay- yeah. know, with a proper yeah. I so I waited it. for my spot. I parked my Pacer right across the street from the Bronson Gate and uh, the big beautiful gate. Sure. And I would fit in with the other people and I take a blank card and I would clock it in and I was on the lot and it was Nirvana. There were orange trees and people in costumes and a commissary where they were eating and sound stages and a wardrobe department and a fire station and a hospital and walls. Backlots and all that. And backlots, a New York Street, a Western Street. And it was a fantasy. And I used to walk. I get chills. Look at my arm. Ah, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps. And it was, I'm in. And I started walking around, and I stayed there from seven in the morning till eleven at night. And I would come home every night, geared up, and I would walk around, and I would look, and I would sneak into all the executive offices, and I would look at their desks, and I would, I would see, you know, uh, Michael Eisner's desk, and all the vice presidents, Larry Mark's desk, and all the vice, and I would that little beautiful area, um, where the green is and all the executive offices are around it. And my dad's an electrical engineer and I would always make radios and things like that. And the Lucille Ball makeup building was empty. And I said, Hmm, I could put an office in there. So I went to the prop department one night about five o'clock and I said, and Bing Crosby productions was there. And I took one of, he was the first guy to invent the golf cart using it as a, uh, you know, on motiv- on on the lot. On the lot. motive. So he had his golf carts there. To go around the lot. To go around the lot. Which is how it goes. So there. I unplugged one, and I would drive around the lot all night. So I drove up to the prop department, and I brought a... Fake piece of paper, and I said I found an office in the that I need. I wanted, and I said, "I uh, hi, how you doing? I'm from Happy Days, and Mister Marshall, Gary Marshall, needs a an office, a check. uh, I mean, uh, a desk, a chair, and stuff. Uh, We need to put it in uh, Mrs Cunningham's uh, kitchen." He said, "A desk and a chair, and Mrs." I go, "That's what we need." I got the you know the thing here. Order right now. An invoice from Mister Marshall, and he said, "Okay, take what you want." So I took loaded it onto my thing. I drove up to, the, I lugged up these desk and chair and a little mini couch. I mean, uh, you know, and I made myself an office and I went to the, the stage next door and I spliced a phone. You know, they have these phones all over the stage and I spliced a phone and I took it and I brought the wire all the way up to my office which was on the third floor. And I was able to figure out a way to tape it, you know, so I could reach down and pick it up. And I made myself a phone. And I started making phone calls and calling, I, you know, on Thursday in Variety. No, you know, people don't really, it's a great thing to remember. Thursday came out television. I don't know if you remember. Friday came out film. So you could literally, I used to go to Nicodell's, which was next to Paramount. And I would buy my Hollywood Reporter and my my variety, and I would look at all the shows on Thursday came out, television, and I would look at all the shows where they're casting, and on Friday, all the movies, and they had phone numbers for the casting numbers, and I would be in my office, and I would make phone calls, and Michael Bell was uh, involved with an agency called the, um, Edgar Small and and Paul Woodville had an agency, Uh, and they said to me, We're not going to represent you. But if you ever get a deal, we'll represent you. So I used to say, hi, this is uh, Edgar Small from the uh, ABC agency. I've got a great young man who's a—I used to describe myself as a young brunette who would be perfect for this role. Have any roles? And all these casting directors would say, yeah, we have a role for blah, blah, blah. And I would go down to their offices, sneak in. And sit there and sign myself in and say I'm with the ABC agency and get auditions. And I would do it all over the Paramount lot. And Hoyt Bowers was one of the greatest casting directors of all time. He did all the shows. And I used to sneak into his office and try to get auditions. Uh, And then I got uh, TV commercials and made a lot of money. And I was going to my office every day with my sport coat. And... Completely unauthorized. Uh, completely. And at night, I was looking through all the ca- all the casting offices. But you were all getting roles while you were doing this. I was. <laughs> but I found myself at the end of that year extremely lonely. And I found myself despising the culture of show business. And I had a few lousy experiences. And uh, I had an agent. And I told... Arnold Rifkin this the other day. Nicole David and Arnold Rifkin, who later became the heads of William Morris, um, had an agency that I was able to get part of, get inside, and they actually started representing me. But I decided to quit show business. I hated it. What year are we now? Uh, eighty seventy. This is 77.
0: Uh, yeah, oh, so it's early. This is the beginning. Yeah. It's the uh, beginning.
1: Uh, June of six seventy six to June of 77. Okay. So... I walked into Arnold's office and I said, I'm quitting and I'm going back to school. He said, why? You're doing so well. You got a pilot, you got a movie. I did a movie called The Chicken Chronicles. But I still have a problem with the culture in our business. Um, You know, Bruce Willis did a a very funny bit one time. He said, let me tell you about show business. There's lying, there's cheating, there's adultery, there's, there's murder. There's rape, there's people being taken advantage of left and right, there's stealing, and there are also some bad parts involved. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, we live in a, you know, a, a society, you know, that has all kinds of value systems. But, you know, show business has a different value system, and I had a real problem with it. So I quit. And I went back to school. And that was my first foray, foray into show business. I went back to school. Where? At, uh, Albany State. So you did go to Albany State. I did. Okay. So I went back to Albany State. And how long did you stay there? Well, I stayed there for about six months. I was going to say. So I'm having a great time in school. Yeah. I'm doing okay. <laughs> but I am partying my ass off. And I had my youth back. The thing I lost when I was here for my first year in California in show business was I had no youth. Right, because you were going to be a freshman in college, and instead of going through that experience
0: of being independent from home and going away and being with people your age and going to school, you were throwing yourself into the world of show business that there started right out of high school. I had no f- real friends. No, uh, you came straight out.
1: Yeah, and uh, it, 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 I, I had no youth. Of, for that year. Right. So when I went to Albany State, I had a great time. Parties, sweet mates, you know, guys, you know, guys have a car. We all drive to Moe's Deli and it's yeah. l- really a lot of fun. Yeah. So Undergraduate school. It's great. I had a, it was a party one night, you know, a a beer party in, in our suite. We had three rooms in the suite. And, um, there was, a. Uh, a guy goes, there was a phone call. And we had one phone. The guy goes, Gutenberg, you know, Gutenberg, you know, my name was changed by then. Uh by this agent, Edgar Small. He goes, Gutenberg sounds terrible. It sounds Gutenberg sounds better.
0: So, so wait a second, Gutenberg is the proper way?
1: Well, when we came my family came over from From Germany? From from Austria. From Austria, okay. Gutenberg was the pronunciation. One okay. T. But when we Ellis Island, it became two Ts. And whoever oh. was Okay. When it came to, they called it Gutenberg. Okay, so right. that's how it was. You know, it's pronounced. And then this guy said Gutenberg much better. So, um, I'm drunk off my ass at this party. Party, and my sweet mate goes, "Hey, there's some guy from California on the phone." I go, "California." He goes, "Yeah, okay. Arnold wants to talk to you. Get on the phone." And he says to me, "Steve, it's Arnold Rifkin. I got an audition for you." I go, "Arnold, I don't want to be an actor. I don't want to be any part of Hollywood. I don't want to." I just don't want to be in Hollywood anymore. It's not for me. He said, well, just, it's a guy named Frank Schaffner who directed all these great movies. I go, Arnold, no. Thank you. Goodbye. Boom. Next day, I'm stoned again, drunk, and I'm in a friend of mine's uh, sweet uh, college room, and I'm playing with the door with my feet. The door closes, and there's a poster of Patton directed by Franklin Schaffner. I go, I know that name. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I heard so, it a day ago. A friend of mine, he was a cinephile. He goes, that's one of the greatest directors. He did Planet of the Apes, Papillon. So I went, oh, my God. So I call Arnold, and I said, I- I'd like to audition for this. So uh, they sent a limo, actually, up for, to uh, uh, Albany State for me. And Frank Schaffner saw this movie I did called The Chicken Chronicles with Phil Silvers, which is a teen movie produced by Walter Schanzer, who actually produced Help and Hard Day's Night. So a, a legitimate guy, legitimate guy. So I went down there, and um, I walked in, and Mervin Nelson was the casting director. And he said, look, you you know, you can't be pretty in this audition. You've got to be great. Uh, you know, it's Laurence Olivier, James Mason, Gregory Peck, Uta Hagen. So I did my audition, and I got the part. Boys of Brazil. I went back to school, and they called and said he got the part. And then I had to call my parents and say, I'm going to leave school, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to leave school. I'm going to go do this movie. My first international flight, my mother and father took me to the airport. My mother brought salami and, and Greg Peck was on the flight. My mother gave salami to Greg Peck. And <laughs> Marty Richards, who won the Oscar for oh, recent, a few years ago, won the Oscar for, I forgot the movie, uh, Best Picture. They were all getting, and these were fancy guys. And we, and you know, I was flying first class. So I got on this plane and went to Lisbon, Portugal. I never dealt with jet lag before. You know, I slept for two days. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And uh, I did Boys from Brazil. So um, I I got a call to come back and do a show called Billy Liar. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on the movie, John Rich was producing and, um, man, I got to look her up cause she's such a sweet lady. Um, and that's how that was the hookup on this. And that was the hookup. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Jane I, Rosenthal, Jane Rosenthal. So Janie, who I was very friendly with, um, I met her and Jane, such a nice lady. Um, Worked for Tri- he, well, she worked for Gene She's still with Tribeca to
0: this yeah, day. She's such, yeah, yeah, she's such a really with, important with, lady, with, with, yeah.
1: and a nice lady. De Niro, yeah. So um, Jane and Gene Guest put me into Billy, and I uh, never came. I, then I actually entered UCLA and did a wonderful uh, job. I, I think studying at UCLA. So but
0: you so you moved to go to university at UCLA. Yeah, I, yeah. I came
1: out to do Billy, but I kept wanting to go to school which was
0: billy fisher Uh, billy fisher right right the tv series yeah Yeah.
1: so that was it and i apologize jane sorry for being old and forgetting
0: (laughs) (laughs) and then it just kept rolling man and then and then you had a few projects before working with uh with mr levinson on diner of course yeah yeah then i got and then i just
1: kept getting roll after roll roll. roll after after i was really lucky i worked for bob evans I worked for some amazing people: Bob Evans on *Players*, and of course Barry Levinson and Mark Johnson. And you know, uh, I just did movie after movie. Frank, uh, oh, you know, just terrific direct- directors and producers. Yeah,
0: just the lineup of yeah. the greats. Yeah, awesome. And and for you, uh, it 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 just kept rolling. And 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 ultimately, I guess. UCLA you danced in it but you didn't stay in it right
1: no no I started getting so busy it was impossible to go back It was hard to keep up my studies right and I got hooked yeah and I you know I've stayed in Hollywood ever since right the show business ever since
0: yeah yeah and then in terms of uh of of making the decision when I bumped into you at making P.S. your cat is dead that was your first time that you decided, oh, I'll direct something. Well, that no. Was,
1: or had you directed before that? I did. Okay. I directed uh, two after-school specials. Okay. I had a manager who was a very smart guy named Keith Addis, and he said, you know, you're really creative, and you write really well. You should direct. So we went to CBS after-school specials. I think Gene Guest was part of that, too, mm-hmm. and maybe Jane Rosenthal. And, um... Or maybe Jane was at Universal by then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I directed two school break specials, which yeah. actually got one was um, about um, uh, about being gay, um, and it was a very very interesting piece that was ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And then I did another piece on gangs. Which is another piece that I think was ahead of its time. Um, And um, it was a great experience directing them. Right. Yeah. And then there was another guy, I forgot Frank's last name. Frank actually, I think, was one of the big producers on Game of Thrones. Uh, Him and a guy named Howard Meltzer produced uh, these two school break specials. And it was pretty great. Right. So then when I did. P.S. Yeah, I'd already had a little directing under my belt. Right, so you'd already done stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: and you chose that because you loved the the story, and you adapted it. it had been on, I guess, on Broadway. right? Yeah,
1: Pierre Trudeau is dead by James Kirkwood was a really um, fascinating story, and it was another show that was ahead a, of his time. Um, a story about uh, a straight actor and a gay burglar, and they spend New Year's Eve together. Because the the actor catches the burglar, James Kirkwood was gay and wasn't afraid of uh, talking about it's it. Coming out, yeah. yeah. And um, and you know in those days, you know it was a really progressive um, piece. Right, right, you know, right. It was of a course. play, yeah. and actually Salminio did the play, um, and directed by actually. Directed by um, that great uh, Scientologist uh, acting teacher from the Beverly Hills Playhouse, um, I forgot his name too, um, and he was the original director. It's just a great piece. And how do you feel now about
0: because you've been through you rode through some of the biggest of the sort of the tentpole era of film yeah. as theatrical. Yeah. Uh, presentation and now uh, we, we're, we're swimming in new waters. And how do you feel about the waters that we swim in today, the, the non theatrical uh, exhibition waters that still is a movie making world, you know, the streaming world and everything that we live in now is sort of the, the theatrical world has sort of been taken, not taken away, but it's pivoted. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, as much as things change, things change, uh, stay the same. Stay the same, right. You know, we have self-driving cars, but we still have a round steering wheel, which was 1910 or whatever. And we still have a gas pedal and a brake. No matter what, we still have those things. People, audiences, will always be interested in watching other people. You know, they did a study. Um, I think it was Jane, Jane Goodall did a study about who's the most popular chimp in, in the pod. Now, people might think it's the strongest chimp or the smartest chimp or the best looking chimp. No. The most popular chimp in the pod is the chimp that will put his head into a beehive, come out with the beehive on his head, running around, hitting himself on the stick and falling off a cliff. That's the most popular chimp in the group, the entertainer. The entertainer will always be the most popular person in the world, always be. Now, you could have the Pope, you could have the President of the United States, you could have premiers, you could have dictators, you could have mafia chiefs. But the guy who can tell a joke and make someone laugh or make someone cry or make someone feel is the most popular. So as John Garfield did, then actors today will do, and they will do for the next million years. Yeah. People want to watch people. We could have cartoons, animation. We could have, you know, stop action, whatever that is. So years ago, when Edison did it, it was light on a sheet, and it made you scared. But it was actually just light on a thin sheet. That's all it is. It's not real. So people want that, and people want to take that leap. So... Years ago, it was only a big screen and a television set, and now we have other places to show our wares, and whether it's a phone on your ri- a screen on your wrist, or in your hand, or in an iPod, or in a computer, or in a screen at home, there'll always be a desire to watch other people, and I think it's great, and everyone else thinks it's great now. We have purists. Yes, I am a member of the Academy. And, you know, it's not called movies, you know. It's called the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. It's not called best movie. It's not called best film. It's called best picture. That's what it is. It's a moving picture. That's what you get. no, No matter what. No matter what. That's what it is. So it's a picture. Now... We have to have some sort of boundaries to this because if I show a film on my phone, can that get an, on my wristwatch, can that get an Academy Award? You see, when you go to a theater, you can't eat fish, although my grandmother used to go to the movies and eat baked salmon in the movies. And, and, and then her seat in the theater. Yeah, and everybody would go, who's eating fish? You can't go to the movies in your underwear. You can't iron. You can't diaper the baby. You can't walk away for a few minutes and then come back. Basically, you have to sit in your seat. And you have to be an adult. You have to have good manners. And you have to be polite because there's a theater full of people. It's a social experience. Exactly. Now, there's a, there is a difference. So I know that there's an argument now about Netflix or Hulu. and Can they be up for best picture? I don't know. That's to be decided. That's to be debated, you know. Uh, because cause the experience. Well, the experience of going to a theater and keeping your pants on as opposed to taking your pants off and sitting and watching Hulu. No. There has to be some dignity. You know, when you go to the theater in New York, Broadway or or Minneapolis or Los Angeles or wherever, anywhere the theater, you can't go in your underwear. you got to, you know, you've got to wear clothes, be an adult. Yeah. So, yes, things have changed. Um, but there's still a camera and it captures people. And... That is forever and terrific. I think what's great is there's all there's more places for people and actors and artists and directors and grips and and photographers and cinematographers and wardrobe people to work. More work is better. We need more work. you know there's some crazy more
0: content being made.
1: There's only three percent of all the actors work make a living. Can you imagine? not good. out of two hundred thousand actors, you know what, 6,000 people make a living? It's unbelievable. Imagine around the world. So I do believe there's something else that I'd like to bring up. Our society has thrown our value system away. Integrity, character, discipline, they were all thrown away when that book came out, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Now, years ago, How you won friends and influenced people was by being a good person. So this book came out, which is a huge bestseller and still is, that says, I know how you can make people like you. Charlie has a pen in his shirt. If you come in and you want to sell Charlie these cups, say, oh, Mr. Hertzfeld, I love your pen. It's a great pen. Uh, That's a great pen. And Charlie, you will go, oh, I like this guy. He likes my pen. I'm gonna sell you, I'm gonna buy some of your cups. So they taught you as opposed to character, integrity, discipline, thoughtfulness, kindness. Those those qualities don't matter anymore. What matters is making the sale. Oh, I noticed your daughter plays soccer. I brought this soccer ball because I just want making people like you by bullshitting them. And that's what started a whole different society. Now we are in that society of selling and learning how to twist things and how to make things work to get the sale. Well, it kind of
0: raises another question that I'm that you've led to that I love the topic of, which is the idea of stardom marquee value, name, right? Mm. The marquee, or as it was, the marquee was the movie theater marquee. Yeah. Steve Gutenberg on a marquee,
1: yeah.
0: on one of your Big films that consumed the public's attention yeah. was a, a, a star-building process, yeah. right? Now, what is what is the the new the new world of building a star? Yeah. comes through social media. It comes through Instagram, Facebook, uh, uh, YouTube, whatever you know. People having followers but it's more the wild west like like i I can i can go out there and even even this podcast will be will ultimately get broadcast on youtube it'll be available you know in all different kinds of ways listen watch um so there are different channels to get content out but when you think about it where is when you talk about integrity where there in in the movie business especially in the era that you've inhabited um, there was a, a bar that was set that you couldn't pass through mm-hmm. on, on, unless you 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 were able to engage in the process with all of the tools that were needed to w- one made a movie mm-hmm. with on a, on a on a set with film rolling and lights and dollies mm-hmm. and all of the barriers to filmmaking mm-hmm. and now I'm not saying that just cuz you have an iPhone you're a director or a, or a digital camera but the barrier to call yourself a movie maker mm-hmm. has changed yeah right so and and that's both great and then also uh, 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 it, it is, after all, a, a craft and an art form, mm. and and you took it seriously because you went at it with the idea that, growing up, you loved the theater, you loved acting, you loved the process. Of course, you know it. It the the driving force has many components, but discipline is a big part of it, and and getting to that place, yeah. right. So it's it's not um, uh, the, the idea of, of, of growing stardom or, or creating, uh, the attraction of, of what that once meant has also changed. Yeah. Well, what do you think about that? I mean, I just, it's a, it's a, maybe an anomalous thought, but it's not entirely an anomalous thought. Well, right. Yeah. You know,
1: um, discipline, integrity, character, nobility, those um, those qualities used to be in guys like Greg Peck.
0: And you when you worked on Boys of Brazil, Olivier, per, per, perfect example, Mason. I mean, here you are, right? Getting a chance as a young man to work with the greats, right? This was a moment. This was a turning point moment in your life. I'm sure that to have that opportunity to be in the presence of these guys who had passed through that barrier and you were being given an opportunity
1: to join them on the journey. And it appeared they lived their life like that. I remember James Mason talking to me and being so sweet. He had terrible psoriasis on his hands. And he would bring lunch. His wife, Pamela, would bring lunch for him. And he would share his lunch with me. And we would talk. Um, Greg Peck would invite me over. And he seemed like the same guy in To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, Laurence Olivier seemed to have great qualities. What happened with society is we've lost the respect for those qualities. And it doesn't matter. Years ago, you would look at John Wayne and you would think he's he's noble, he's brave, he's courageous. And that's what you instilled in that character.
0: But you didn't get to be one of those guys without...
1: There were barriers to get there, no? Well, there were barriers to get there, but it was how you held yourself. You know, um, Charlton Heston actually... Was one of the guys who really was important in the civil rights movement. People don't know that. He started AFI. He cared about our craft. He cared about people. Um, Greg Peck or any of these guys, you know, Olivier or you know, Ronald Coleman, they really had genuine lives. Today, because society doesn't really respect it, and we see it out of some of our greatest, most powerful politicians, that it doesn't matter those qualities. And those qualities aren't respected and actually can't be found. And they're only found in one place today. Those qualities are only found in superheroes, imaginary people. When you go to Iron Man, Aquaman, any of these superheroes, the Avengers, they're all flawed characters who, at the end of the story, do what's right. And they're imaginary Years ago, movie stars seemed to Bogart seemed to have qualities of integrity. That's what was advertised in out those days. YouTube or or um, or or any of the you know any of the social media today. There was Screen Digest or the Mirror or any of those famous Hollywood magazines. Publications, yeah. You would see these people at home living good lives. Now on social media. Hey, if you do a porno, you know, you get to be pretty famous. Years ago, you you know, Fatty Arbuckle, you know, did essentially a you know a rough porno and he got bounced out of the business. You know, you do a porno today and you're a star, you know. So those 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 qualities aren't respected anymore. What's really more respected today, well, it's always been about money, but it's, volume of viewers? Uh, it, it's really about creating a frenzy of some type. About um, notoriety. In, you know, infamy, you know, um, not being famous, being infamous. You know, you could be a criminal today and be sort of heralded, you know, um, you can do the wrong thing. And get a lot of juice out of it. Um, And I'm no angel. But I do believe that what we do on screen or on this screen or on this screen or this screen affects people. And they emulate it. You know, human beings are lemmings. They'll just follow whatever anybody says. You know, that's how the Nazis... And Hitler became so powerful. You just follow a charismatic guy. Whoever's the most certain is the guy people will listen to. So if you're certain, your lifestyle, you know, if you see on any of these shows, who has the biggest house, who has the biggest car, who makes the most money, they're the ones who are respected. Years ago, you could be a bus driver, have four kids, and someone would say, Your dad's a bus driver? That's so cool. And be respected and have a good life. And, you know, as my, my father-in-law says, you know, years ago, a guy who was a bus driver could have a wife who didn't work, have four kids, and live a good life and buy a house. You know, that's hard today. And the bus driver's not respected. You've got to be a hedge fund guy. You've got to be the head of a band. You've got to be an NFL player. You've got to be famous or, you know. To reach the status. Yeah. The, so, the the level of the level in society. Right. So, and I'm not knocking any of it because I'm in the business. And you know, I've got 27,000 Twitter followers. Would I like 10 million? Sure. I'm not sure I want to do what it takes to have 10 million followers. I don't know if I want to mortgage part of my life for that. And that's what you have to do if you want 10 million followers to build your presence you have to mortgage part of your personal life and that's a choice and i got a lot of friends who do it you have you have a lot of friends in the talent world that that were, were sure. willing to do that sure it's a choice and i'm not judging it i'm a non-judgmental guy you know other than you know committing crimes you know you live how you want to live but there's a choice and if you make that choice you'll have tons of followers now the illusion is if you have 10 million followers they'll also go to the theater or watch you on on some sort of streaming service we don't really know you know we really don't know the the true numbers from streaming streaming services we really don't you know when i made uh police academy first one 1984 we really don't know how many people went to the theater now the theaters Reported. Reported. And, you know, you couldn't deny that it was a big hit. might have made double. But we don't really know. So when people say that this is a hit on streaming, we don't really know. Um, We don't really know how accurate the Nielsen box is. You know, we have a real problem today about work ethic. I want to – a guy doesn't want to work hard. He wants to invent an app that becomes an incredibly successful app because everything is too much in our face you know, billionaires from who's a a twenty seven year old billionaire from Silicon Valley. Because we admire that. Yeah. You know, one of the jenners, you know, and I worked with Bruce, you know, Caitlin, um, and I remember when I would see him and he had nine kids, you know. Uh, but one of their kids is supposedly a billionaire, you know, from makeup and all this sort of stuff. And every girl in the world wants to be a billionaire. Well, I'm not judgmental in that sense. And I don't want to be, and I don't want to pretend that I know what the rules should be. But how about being a good person? You know, you could be very successful working for Con Ed, you know, and coming home at five o'clock and having a nice family and one car and going on one vacation a year and being really happy. You don't have to have the biggest house in the world. You don't, you know. And our society, I know, in New York and L.A., everything is about how big is this house. What does he drive? And I go. I, I recently I'm on the phone with a friend of mine, and he said he's talking about a guy. And I go, Oh yeah, how's he doing? He goes, How's he doing? Have you seen his house? And I'm thinking, Can I say the f word? I said, Are you fucking kidding me?
0: You should. I want you to say the f word. Thank are you. you fucking kidding me? Are you me? fucking
1: kidding me? Thank you. Please that's say how, that. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Then we'll, I'll, I'll be seen more, right? <laughs> um, but are you fucking kidding me? That's how you ju- That's how you're presenting this guy. That's how this guy's a success to me. Have you seen his fucking house? Are you kidding me? What the fuck has happened to you, man? I mean, you know, I, that happens to me every day. I said, how's he doing? How's he doing? Have you, you know, He, he belongs to, the, to Bel Air. That's how you fucking define a guy? He belongs to Bel Air? Give me a fucking break. What's happened to everybody? How about he's a really good guy? That's it. And we're friends and we like to hang out. Yeah. Is that enough? Yeah. Yeah. See, I have a lot of powerful friends, and I always say there's a number. I don't know what that number is. That everybody has a different number. Sometimes you're worth a hundred bucks. You know, I know a guy who who's a degenerate gambler, and every time he gets like a thousand bucks, he thinks he's the richest guy in the world, and he goes crazy and he spends it all. Then there are I know guys who are billionaires, and that number, whether it was ten million or hundred million, made them go loopy. And every time you want to see them, they go, yeah, come over to my house. And I go, no, no, dude, if we're going to be friends, you got to come to my house, too, or we can't be friends. You know, I was, my wife and I, we lived in New York for 15 years, and, you know, I had some successful friends who would never come to our apartment, you know, because they wanted us to go to their apartment, the big apartment, you know. They want you to they want you to
0: experience their splendor. Yeah. And they also want and their the, li- the, the ease the, of and, but you know. also they want to show their largesse of their yeah. lives. Look yeah. how
1: you know, look how great I'm doing. Um it's a real problem, man. You know, I'm fortunate and you're fortunate. We grew up before the phone. Oh, so yeah. oh, if yeah. you want to go see a friend, you'd have to use the phone, which was expensive. Or a new thing called walk down the block and knock on his door and say, hey, can Jimmy come out and play? Um, Doesn't exist. Not yeah. anymore. You have play dates, you know, because everybody's so afraid, you know. Uh, well, I also
0: think and it, the, the turnoff aspect is interesting because I've tried to make myself more conscious recently of if I'm at a dinner doing this. Yeah. It's like or it's, that. It's respectful. Right. But. But there is, uh, when I'm with my 21 year old son or 24 year old daughter, yeah, that that you know I see them, they're they're talking while their their thumbs are moving at a thousand miles an hour, mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Although I do believe that that they they too long for finding a way, you know, to oh, to, to connect right. Still humans. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. You know,
1: uh, years ago, you go into a meeting, and a guy would have a meeting with you. Then came the computer, where while he was in the meeting, he would be kind of like looking at the computer and seeing if anything came through. Now you go to a meeting with people, and they put their phone up in a little stand, and they're talking to you, and they're looking at their thing. Part, and, you never know your... when and you
0: never know when it's going to flash, and they're going to yeah. lose their head. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. It's
1: fucking insane.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, They're, we can't. They can't be present. And you know,
1: listen, nothing's going to stop it. So hopefully, you know, now people have these little games where they put their phones in the middle of the dining table, and whoever grabs their phone first to check it pays for the meal. <laughs> I mean, that's what you. It's, it's come to. It's just, you know. It's, yeah, no, no, it's no, no, nutty.
0: no, no. It is nutty. It's it is nutty, nutty. and
1: I, I don't want to be an old fogey because you know I'm as progressive as as you know any leftist guy around I want equality and I want you know I want us to not see gender anymore and I don't want anybody to see sexual preference and color or religion and I'm a Jew I'm not white I'm not a white guy I'm a Jew and guess what you know there's been an 84 percent increase in hate crimes in New York City and it's against Jews guess what go to London And they don't like the Jews go to Paris. They don't like the Jews go to plenty of places in our country. They don't like the Jews. So I'm not coming from a white guy point of view. I'm not white. I'm tan. And, you know, I also have a thing about being Jewish. No one really understands. You know, we're, we're, we're the biggest effing minority in this country. And aside from the native Americans who completely got fucked you know, what happened to them? I mean, what happened to them? Well, you know, they're they're not going to be dangerous. But fuck, man. What happened to them? And what about the Jews? I mean, we're persecuted beyond belief. You know, you know, there's tons of anti-Semitism around. So I get off on this little thing. But, you know, I was telling my wife, I'm going to start wearing a yarmulke because I want people to know I'm Jewish and to stop being afraid of the Jews because I don't know where this... Anti-Semitism has raised his head well, really Well, certainly,
0: but. like you can in Williamsburg, you can walk around here in L.A. on Fairfax and parts of uh, North Hollywood or Burbank where you see plenty of Hasids and people yeah. that show their wares. Yeah. But um, go to the middle of the country.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or go to London. Go to go to you know anywhere in the in, the, in Europe, Jews aren't that popular. They're just not. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well and that's a whole other factor that we have that we that we, we Meanwhile
1: we, the Jews started show business really effectively from the schmata business you know the what I love the story about the Jews um they were making movies in New York and Edison found out that you know Warners and all these guys they you know these Jews Cohen and all these guys Goldwyn were Goldwyn were using his you know they were stealing his patents and they had to pay you know, a a, 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 a moneys on that, and they didn't want to pay the monies. so they all ran out to California to get away from paying the patents and using the cameras out there, which I thought was really cool. It's hilarious. Actually, I think it was, I think Edison had um, my father-in-law actually showed me a building where Edison in Buffalo had his first uh, screening room, which was huh. kind of cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah,
0: because yeah, I know the one in West Orange, of course, in New Jersey, right. the Edison. Edisons, one of the, uh, yeah. and I think the Great Train Robbery was shot. Uh, D.W. Griffith was shot in the South Mountain Reservation in New Jersey. Of yeah, all things, I there's like that. there's like weird history it's on cool. the East Coast from old stuff. Cool. But yeah, you know, I mean, uh, 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 it's it's it, to me the I I I like the dialogue at this point about about the barrier for entry and storytelling and uh and and focusing on 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 there being uh, a, a, a little bit of uh, an idea that you can't necessarily and really it, it is the case you can't be making a a large movie as an untrained individual, you know, but there's got to be there's a process we all go through to 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 gain those uh, the, those those chops. It's just that the the world has has expanded our, our, our opportunities to deliver and, uh, and to, to create, as you refer to it, this uh, idea of popularity rather than, uh, uh, than, than the craft, I guess, in a sense, right? Well, listen, years yep. ago,
1: there were some really good-looking actors that didn't have to have much talent. Just be good-looking. Right. You know, I mean, I think Troy Donahue was a good actor, but he was so good-looking, you know? Um, and today... Um, talent isn't as respected as uh, your followers, um, how you look, and right. you know, and actually, you know, having any kind of real stage experience or stage training or real theatrical training. Right, that's what isn't I'm thinking. As yeah. important as just being, you know, being there.
0: So what's next, man? For you? What's oh. on? What's uh, what's what's coming up? I know you did the 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 stuff with with uh, HBO and then you did a series in Florida and what's coming up next for you?
1: Well, I I just got done, I I was in Europe uh, working on a film called Big City Dreams, a really interesting director, um, played a gangster and uh, coming up uh, in July with um, uh, Wally Shawn, um, I'm going to do Woody Allen's next movie, his summer project. And, uh, oh, nice. that's what I got coming up. And Christoph Waltz is in it, too. Kim Bassinger, Wally Sean, me, and a, a host of other really great actors. Oh, wonderful. Mm. So
0: you're going to be in the summer project with what he says. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, because yeah, you did uh, the play as well. I did Relatively Speaking. Yeah, because John, John talked about that. Did he talk about Relatively yeah. Speaking? Yeah, well, because he was involved. He was the director. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He was, wow. Yeah, yeah. What did yeah. he say about it? He he was he loved it. He was he did. Uh, yeah. Well, he loved working with all the different, uh, the different sections, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was a good yeah. director. Yeah. He was Fun. really great. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, uh, for joining here today, man. Thank you. Thank you, so thank much, you brother. Charles. Love you. Love Thanks, you man. Too.